Good morning. Um, I'm Grace Miller, and I teach in the biology department. It's my pleasure today to introduce our speaker, Dr. Matthew Sleeth. Uh, Matthew Sleeth uh, caps a whole week of creation care, our very first creation care week at Indiana Wesleyan's history. And uh, we've had a great week with speakers such as Dr. Ward last Monday and many other events. Kaylee Necessary, who is our Alliance Garden, IW Alliance Student Garden Manager, Creation Care Alliance Student Body Advisor, and Alliance House Mentor, um, did a great job of putting it together. Let's give her a big hand for that. Um, I first met Matthew and Nancy Sleeth a few years ago at a writer's conference at uh, the headquarters of the Wesleyan Church in Indianapolis. At that time, um, hearing them speak, reading their books, I just was so glad to talk to them and hear how they had downsized and were practicing Sabbath and really uh, making a huge ministry of uh, Sabbath and creation care. And I was just sitting at their table, listening to their wisdom, listening to their faith, stories, and their sincerity, and their encouragement to me. And I've since passed that blessing on to my students. So this is a really special treat for me to have him speak here. Dr. Sleeth was a former emergency room physician and chief of the hospital medical staff in New England. He resigned from his position to teach, preach, and write about the biblical call to be good stewards of the earth. A highly sought-after speaker, Dr. Sleeth has spoken more than 1,000 churches, campuses, and events, including serving as the monthly guest speaker at the Washington National Cathedral. Recognized by Newsweek as one of the nation's most influential evangelical leaders, Dr. Sleeth is a graduate of George Washington University School of Medicine and has two postdoctoral fellowships. Dr. Sleeth is the executive director of Blessed Earth, founder of the Seminary Stewardship Alliance and author of the book, Serving God, Saving the Planet, A Call to Care for Creation and Your Soul, and the book 24-6, A Prescription for a Healthier, Happier Life, a book about Sabbath, and numerous creation care books and articles. There'll be a talk back for all of us, um, faculty, staff, and especially students at Teeter Cafe immediately following chapel. So please come and join us there. Um, so for now, please turn your uh, Facebook off, take your feet off, the tears in front of you, and let's give Dr. Sleeth a warm welcome. Thank you, Grace. Hi. It's kind of intimidating to be up here. Um, so please be nice. Uh, first, let me get the kind of the paperwork out of the way. I, I brought books and DVDs, and there's a table in the back. Dr. Adam York is with me, and you can just go back there and take them from him. Uh, you can leave a donation or you can take them. I don't care. It, it's up to you. Uh, uh, when Serve God, Save the Planet got to its 10th printing, for whatever reason, they changed the name to Serving God, um, and there's a film with that. And the 24-6, you, you folks I know in your stage of life are very, very busy, uh, is about Sabbath. And if you don't have time to read the book, grab one of the films. And if you don't have time to watch the whole film, either watch 
Eugene Peterson, me talking, or David Green, who's associated with here, uh, uh, asked me out and spent a day and talked about Sabbath. So uh, feel free to avail yourself of those. <clears throat> Let me tell you how I got involved in creation care. It's called My Testimony. <clears throat> and you have to listen because you're Christians and it's a mandatory chapel. <clears throat> I grew up in dairy farming country in Maryland, and um, I, I, so I grew up around nature, lots of streams and farms and cows and, and that sort of thing, and uh, went to church when I was a, a little kid, and then my family didn't uh, do so well. Uh, I, I stopped doing that, and um, I did really poorly in high school. And, and if, you're ha if you're struggling with school now, let this be an encouragement to you. I flunked out of the 10th grade, managed to graduate from high school, third from the bottom of my class in an industrial program. And my building confidence in my medical skills to you, no. Um, and uh, I became a carpenter, and I went out and I built houses, and I did this for about seven years. <clears throat> And then one day I was uh, at this house and my favorite kind of people to work for, they were wealthy. And, uh, and I was there to see about uh, doing a, a large remodeling job and they were Jewish. The guy was a periodontal surgeon, uh, the father of the home. And he had uh, four children, three girls, one boy. <clears throat> and when their 18 year old daughter walked into the kitchen their worst nightmare began to unfold. That's my wife, Nancy, okay? And uh, we decided to get married and it's hard to tell you how unhappy her family was with that decision, that she was throwing her life away on this bum. Uh, but we did get married and um, I faced this really tough future. Imagine marrying into a family that would rather you not be on the planet. So I have a hint. If you're marrying into a Jewish family and you're not born a Jew, there is only one thing that you can do to get on the good side of your mother-in-law. Do you know what it is? Convert, no. Go to medical school. That, that is how you get on the good side of your Jewish mother-in-law. And so I, I said to my, my wife, I want to go to medical school, which was quite a trick because I'd never had algebra, chemistry, biology, nothing. And um, uh, a friend got me into uh, undergraduate school, <laughs> pulled a string, and uh, I was told I had a semester and the rest was up to me. Two and a half years later, I was accepted to four medical schools without an undergraduate degree, which shows you what you can do if you marry Nancy, my wife. <laughs> <clears throat> so, we had no religion whatsoever. We didn't, uh, I didn't believe in God, and I sure didn't believe in religions. I hadn't, I hadn't had a good flavor from that at all. Uh, and uh, our religion was the American dream. Get ahead, nice house, jumbo shrimp, uh, good job, you know, that, that was our, our dream. And I had two children, a son and a daughter, and uh, we're living on the coast of Maine. And uh, 
Has anybody here been to Maine? Raise your hand if you've been to Maine. Raise your hand if you've been to Maine in the wintertime. Yeah. Usually I find out who was stationed there in the Air Force or something. Uh, you'll want to get out of Maine in the wintertime. And in February, they have a school break, and we left. And we, we went and stayed off, off the coast of Florida on an island that you have to take a ferry over to. You can't drive there. And my children were kind of little, you know, like this and this size or something. Uh, maybe this and this size. And um, I really wanted them to get worn out. I wanted them to get worn out so I could spend some time alone with my wife. So I paid them a dollar for every gecko they could catch outdoors, okay? And then bedtime came, or dinner time, and we fed them in bedtime, and we, uh, we read to them and everything, and they would not go to sleep. And my frustration was growing. Uh, all of frustration is the gap between your expectations and reality. And I finally took matters into my own hand, and I dime-tapped them. Yeah. They don't know what that is. It's a drug. I put them to sleep, okay? This, you should never do at home, okay? Never do this. And if you do, never give more than 10 milligrams per kilogram, okay? So, down they go. Ah, now they get it. <clears throat> okay, so my wife and I are sitting outside. We're facing the, the Gulf of Mexico. This island has no cars, no lights. They're all turned off at night so they don't disturb the wildlife. And this breeze is blowing across the Gulf and the Milky Way is spread out over top of us. There's no more beguiling sound I think in, in the world perhaps than the sound of wind through trees and if it's in palm trees in the, pop it, in the tropics and your kids are drugged in bed, it's beautiful, okay? And then my, my wife turned to me and she asked me a question. She said, what is the biggest problem in the world today? And I... I took it very seriously. And it's an odd thing because my wife does not ask me hypothetical questions because I'll go off on a tangent for nine hours or whatever. And I stopped and I thought, and I said, the world is dying. Now, I'm not an environmental scientist. I'm a physician at this point, emergency medicine. Um, but I said the world is dying. There aren't, and, and you don't have to be a scientist to get what I'm going to tell you here. There aren't elms on Elm Street. There aren't chestnuts on Chestnut Street. There's no caribou in Caribou, Maine. There's no buffalo in Buffalo, New York. We're not talking about rare things here. The most numerous fish that was ever in the Great Lakes, the Blue Pike, is extinct. The most numerous bird that was ever on this continent is gone. And I said, we cannot continue like this, and it's going to turn out okay. 
So my wife thought for a minute, and then she said, what are you going to do about it? I got up, and I poured her a nice big Dimatap. And um, so we came home, and this question worked on my mind. What am I going to do about a world that's dying? And um, then a, a number of things started happening in our life. And we lived in an area where there were essentially no Christians whatsoever. Um, and, and some bad things started happening. My, my wife's brother drowned in front of my children. And that's a pretty heavy thing to have happen. Um, I had a patient that became obsessed with me. He was mentally ill and began to stalk me and do scary things. And it's a, it's a hard thing to have a job where you work at night, leave your home and know that there's a crazy person out there after you. And he did something really scary one day and the police went and checked and they found his mother in the closet where he had bludgeoned her and taped her up with duct tape and she'd probably been dead for two weeks. And the last thing that was kind of the icing on the cake of bad things uh, was that I got home on a Tuesday morning. It was a beautiful fall day in, um, in New England. And uh, I'd been working at night, so I was kind of sleeping on the couch a little. And my wife came home, and everybody here remembers where you were on that Tuesday morning. It was 9-11. And I watched this horror unfold. And then I got a call from my next door neighbor. Could I go and help her get her son from school? Because his dad was in the first plane. And uh, for some reason, with all of this happening, and, and that question working on my mind, what are you going to do about all these missing forests and birds and this sort of thing, um, I woke up to the fact that there is evil on the planet. And if you have a humanist worldview, a purely scientific worldview, evil doesn't fit into it. Because evil is a spiritual concept. And you're going to have to go into the spiritual realm to even be able to grapple with it. And so I started looking for answers. What do you do about evil? Uh, and, I, and I started reading, and I read the Ramayana, and I read the Bhagavad Gita, and I read the Quran, and so on and so forth. <clears throat> And I did not find the answers to what do you do about a world that's dying? What do you do about a world with evil? And uh, one morning, Sunday morning in the hospital, uh, is very, very slow on Sunday mornings in emergency departments. And uh, it was so slow, we didn't have a single patient. <clears throat> and I ha didn't bring something to read, and I'm a voracious reader. Uh, and I didn't have anything, so I went out into the waiting room, and I went looking for something to read. And on this coffee table with a bunch of old people magazines and National Geographics was this orange book that said Holy Bible on it. And I picked it up, and I looked at it, and I said, I've never read this, and we don't own one. Our house had a library in it at that time. Um, we don't own a Bible. And I thought that I would like to read it. But, you know, it's a kind of a long book, and I didn't think I'd be able to finish before the first 
first patient came, so I stole it. <laughs> I, my, my name is Matthew. I started in the book of Matthew. Uh, like all people, I'm a narcissist, and I, but I am so thankful that my parents did not name me numbers. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I got to about Matthew 7. And it is very hard for me to explain this to people. But it was like I had been plugged into the grid. I confronted Christ. And that is a scary and awesome thing to do. And in Matthew 7, I found the answer to what do you do about a world that's dying? What do you do about problems in the world? Matthew 7 is that judge not lest you be judged. Whatever manner you use to judge other people be used to judge you. It says that we're fools and hypocrites if we do that. And, and then Jesus says that we are always trying to get a speck of sawdust out of other people's eyes. And meanwhile, there's a two by four in our own eye. I had been a carpenter for years and I recognized a carpenter telling a joke when I heard one, okay? <laughs> They said, get the, get the log out of your own eye, and then maybe you can do something about other people. And eventually, this didn't, I'm, I'm abbreviating some of this, this didn't happen all at once, but everyone in my family came to believe that Christ was Lord, and that we ought to get the logs out of our eyes. And uh, we became the poster family for Downwardly Mo. anything? Okay, we'll try again. Now, is that providential or what? I don't know. Um, We all became believers in Christ, and we we changed our lifestyle. You don't have to do this, but it involved even me quitting a job that I I loved that I was really good at, um, that paid a lot, and trying to follow what God would have me learn um, and do. And um, one of the things um, that our family did was to join a church. And uh, this was a lovely church. Uh, We'd moved, we'd moved inland to much more modest circumstances, and we went to this church, and uh, uh, I said something about planting trees around the church, And one of the pastors told me I had the theology of a tree hugger. In this church, that was not a compliment. Okay? And um, I wondered, is this pastor wrong? Should I, or is he right? Should I not be concerned about the environment? And here, here is all of my belief. If it's in Scripture, I believe it. And if it isn't in Scripture, I, I'm suspect. And so what I did was to go and read the Bible from beginning to end and ask the Lord to teach me, what do you care about the environment? It is an interesting exercise to do. And it's hard actually for me to take somebody really seriously who wants to argue this, who hasn't done this exercise. Um, And let me, how many of you, by the way, have had a sermon on trees ever? Raise your hand. Just about none. I want, I want to tell you about something here. 
And I know this is a new subject to you, but wouldn't it be nice to learn something new in chapel today? Something brand new. Okay, let me just think about trees in the Bible with you for a moment. Trees in the Bible are kind of like, um, the closest thing I can think of is in movies. A director can tell you what's going on off screen, what's gonna happen in the future, what's coming up without saying a word. How do they do that? Music. We all live in a movie generation, so we know if there's a guy and a girl and they're having trouble getting together and everything, and all of a sudden you hear violins playing, what's gonna happen? They're gonna get together, they're gonna find each other, okay? So let's say, um, let's say you, you, uh, you hear violins being plucked. Dun, dun, dun. You know, you know that's suspense, right? Now, what if you hear a bass violin being bowed? Dun, 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 dun. Do you go in the water? No way. You'd have to be a teenager to go in the water, okay? Um, you don't go in the water. Oh, some of you are teenagers. I apologize. Um, so in the same way, if there's an almond tree on the page, heads up. If there's a palm tree on the page, heads up. If there's an oak tree on the page, heads up. If there's a mountain acacia, it means another thing. This is the Bible's way of giving you a heads up what's going on. Trees are mentioned more in the Bible than any other living thing other than humans. There's one on the first page. There's one on the last page. There's one on the first Psalm. The New Testament begins with a tree. The longest sentence in the Bible is a family tree, and there's an actual tree of a person in there. Um, and so it's very important to sort of understand Scripture. And, and I want to just, that rain outside? Wow. Captive audience, can't go anywhere. Um, what if you had this as a test? I'm going to give you a couple questions here. How would you do? And by the way, I think some of this might be on the final exam. Heads up. True or false? The Bible refers to itself as a tree. The answer's true. The only thing that Jesus ever harms is a tree. True or false? It's true. The only thing that can kill Jesus is a tree. Have you thought about that? It's the only thing that can kill him. I, I, I'll, in our talkback section or whatever, I'll go into this more, but people tried to stab Jesus, stone Jesus, throw him off a cliff. You can withhold food from him for 40 days. He can climb into the ring with the toughest opponent on the planet and walk out after three rounds. So there's no sense in trying to starve him. I would, it doesn't matter how much it rains, I don't think you can drown him, he'll just walk away from it. Um, the only thing that can kill Jesus is a tree. God's throne in heaven faces a tree, true or false? It does. You want a view of what heaven looks like, you gotta think about trees. Um, the only physical description of Jesus in the Old Testament says that he looks like a tree. You're getting it here. Um, 
you know, I, I would, uh, when we were in medical school and everything, you know, you, we had these things called K questions. Do you still have them? A, B, and C, A and C, C and D, none of the above. They're, they're designed by devils, okay? <laughs> and, the, and, the, and the knee jerk was, if you didn't know, the answer is C, put down C. And I would almost say that if you don't know, the answer is tree in, in the Bible. Um, the, the tree is the symbol of, of everything. Have you thought that God assigns good, evil, life, our work, everything to trees? And so there is this, this uh, story there, and I'm going to give you a few reasons why you should pay attention to trees, which are a symbol really of creation care in the Bible. Um, and by the way, I'm going to answer the first objection that people might have to this whole talk, that in fact, people could come to worship trees. And you know what? That's true. People have worshiped trees in the past. They have worshiped creation. You got a sacred grove around here that people are worshiping, you hand me the chainsaw, I'll take it down. But there's a huge difference. And people have to worship. We have no choice. We either worship the Lord as revealed through Scripture and God, or we're going to make something up. We have no choice. Uh, and so it is possible for people to worship trees or creation. But there's also something called just plain respecting something. It's interesting. What's the only religion on this planet that brings a tree into their house once a year? That's you guys. And you should maybe know why. Um, and, uh, it, and so you can respect something without worshiping it. You can care for something without worshiping it. Um, the Purpose Driven Life, written by Rick Warren, has what on the cover? A tree. And the pages of it have, in shadowy, you know, kind of printed on top of this, pictures of acorns, roots, limbs, the whole nine yards. Strangely, he never tells you what the purpose of them are. <laughs> but they're theologically very, very sound. C.S. Lewis and Tolkien were huge creation care people. C.S. Lewis, probably further out there than I would go. Um, uh, but you can, you can study their works and find out why they were that way. Um, here are some reasons why I think you ought to perhaps at least avail yourself of thinking about this as you go through Scripture. Number one, God calls people from trees. Who do you think was asking me that question in Florida, what's the biggest problem in the world? It was God. That was, God doesn't show up at the end of our beds most of the time. He speaks to us through our work, through Scripture, through the songs we sing, and the people we talk to. And God has called people again and again from trees. Abraham, under the oaks of Mamre. Um, Moses, with a mountain acacia. Um, Gideon, David to battle. Nathaniel, Zacchaeus, Joan of Arc, uh, Martin Luther. It goes on and on and on. If you cut trees and creation out of the picture, you're stopping away for God to get to you. Um, Number two, if you leave trees and creation out of the equation of reading Scripture, you will not understand the Bible completely. You won't understand why Christ dies on a tree. 
Um, another reason is that God uses creation as a parable, if you will. The word parable comes from two words, para, and uh, the word throw, which is where we get the ball from, our word ball. And, and Jesus would throw something beside another thing he was talking about so that we could contrast and compare. And if you don't have nature, you're not going to get the parables that Jesus is telling. Um, Jesus says that God groans when a single sparrow falls out of the sky. That's the kind of... Have you ever hit a bird when you were driving? Isn't it awful? You go, uh, you feel exactly what God feels right there. And Jesus goes on to say, how much more are you worth to God? And we tend to just go there and stay there. But think about this. He's saying, how can you wrap your head around how much God loves you unless you can get it around how much he loves that sparrow? And so if you throw creation out, you're, you're missing a way that God's telling you that he's loving you. Another thing that's really interesting to me is the veracity of the Bible. I am a Bible in earnest. I believe the Bible is the inspired word of God. But it's really neat sometimes when you find stuff in the Bible that nobody figures out for thousands of word, uh, years. And there's more science around trees that is just being discovered uh, than any other area I can think of science in the Bible. Now, you don't use the Bible as a science cookbook or anything, but it's really neat when something the Bible says is real, scientists discover 3,000 years later. Um, and in the talkback section, I can talk more about that. Um, another is to understand Jesus' organic language. Um, and by that, I mean organic as in organic chemistry. His language is unique. Um, I've heard people say, uh, a kind of revisionist, modernist theologians say, well, Jesus has just a vernacular. He's just talking to a bunch of hayseeds. That's the reason his language is like it is. No, it is not. I'll give you a, a few good reasons why that's silliness. Number one, if he was just speaking the language that people could understand, why does he have to explain it to his own disciples? Why does he have to leave the Rosetta Stone of the parable of four soils for us to even be able to decode what he's saying? Another thing is that no one else talks like him around him in history. And I've gone and looked at Pliny and all these other writers. Jesus' language is unique. Don't let anybody take that away from you. Um, it's unique almost in Scripture. There is only one place where where the language really kind of resonates the same as it does coming from Jesus. And you know where that is? In Job. When God Almighty shows up and talks his lips to our ears. And does he explain theology? Does he talk about how to build bigger churches or whatever? He talks about creation. And if we discount that, we discount the words of the Lord to us. Um, I'll give you just a, a little hint of how when you begin to look at this, it begins to play out. There are two dozen gems listed in the Bible, you know, diamonds and rubies and so forth and so on. Jesus 
only mentions one of them. Do you know which gem Jesus mentions? Which one? A pearl. What's unique about a pearl compared to all the other gems? It's the only one that's organic, that's made by an animal. This is not an accident. It's a beautiful pattern, and God just becomes more and more magnificent as you use this way of decoding Scripture. Um, <clears throat> I think, lastly, I would say that you cannot understand Easter without this. These symbols of creation coming through uh, Scripture are very, very important. When you get a tree and a lamb together, watch out. I won't go, I can't, I don't have the time to go through it all. But you know that uh, I was a carpenter and I built many, many, many doors. You, you, you have a door post with a hinge side and a latch side and you have a top called a lintel. And when you spread lamb's blood over that at Passover, that door becomes sealed and death can't get through it. And when you take the Lion of Judah, who lays down with the Lamb of God, Christ, and you take that lamb's blood and you put it on a doorway that looks like this, you open it. You open the door to heaven, and it's spread on a tree. When Jesus was resurrected, Mary came down to the tomb. Her eyes are red and blurry. Think about losing the Lord. And she turns, and there's Christ, and what does she mistake him for? A gardener. That's no mistake. He has come back as the new Adam to fulfill what the original Adam was supposed to do in Genesis 2.15, to dress and keep the garden, abat and shamar in Hebrew, to protect and serve the garden. Think about that as part of the Easter message. That there's all these symbols, and you'll miss them if you discount creation. His crown of thorns are the thorns that the earth has been cursed with, and he has literally absorbed them into his body. So um, I'll leave you with that, um, and I thank you so much for having me here. And um, it's a big subject. Um, thanks for bearing with me. I'm going to pray for you, okay? Uh, it's, it's Easter week. It's the big enchilada on the liturgical calendar. Let's stand and I'm gonna pray. Heavenly Father, this is your world. And all of creation sings your praise. It, it has been held hostage to our sin and your death on the cross is a new beginning for us and for all of creation. Uh, this is Easter week, as these lovely students go about worrying about learning and all the things that are on their shoulders. Um, keep
keep that image of that tree, the cross in front of them with your blood on it that opens the door to heaven. And let us go in love and in joy, um, knowing uh, that all creation sings your praise, and we are part of that. In your son Jesus Christ's name, amen. Thank you.